This is Me, Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response and recovery and understand how our guests became involved in disasters. Over to you, Josh and Andrew. Hello and welcome back to Me, Myself and Disaster, the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus. Social media has redefined how we communicate, particularly during a disaster. Facebook, for example, introduced their safety check feature in 2014 after seeing people use the social media platform to communicate and connect following disasters. Today on the show, we're going to dig a bit deeper into the social media discussion as we ask the question, for better or worse, what is the impact of social media during disasters? Andrew, who is joining us on the show today? Josh, on the show today, we're joined by two guests for what promises to be a great debate about social media. Colleen Haggerty is a freelance multimedia journalist who has worked for the BBC and had her work published in the Washington Post, Marie Claire and Business Insider. She also publishes a newsletter about disaster resilience, preparedness and recovery. Marie Helmfeld is a technology and communications consultant with The Red Elm, as well as an associate with Whittington and Associates. She's been practicing social media and emergency management for 13 years. Ma has a background in cognitive science and has a focus on using technology for good, including for humanitarian purposes. We'll be asking Colleen and Ma about the risks, benefits and possible regulation required to ensure social media continues to provide value in disasters. Let's talk on Me, Myself and Disaster. Colleen and Mark, welcome to the show. Before we get into the social media discussion, I was hoping to share your background with our listeners and given you both have been on the ground during disaster, I think we'd find that really interesting. Maybe Mark, if you can go first, just a bit about yourself and, um, and can you tell us a bit about your experience in emergency management and, and social media? I actually fell into this field by accident. Um, I've been telecommuting uh, from New Mexico. I was at a corporate job. Um, and moved out here in 2005. And I was doing um, IT work in the auto industry. And because, you know, when you when you work in a corporate office or an emergency management office, you're used to people coming into your cube and talking to you for five minutes and walking away. I have nothing but my cats and my husband. And um, so I ended up on social media Um, kind of got dragged kicking and screaming and somebody introduced me to Twitter back in 2009. So what I did for my own sanity while telecommuting was I started a list on Twitter and it was virtual water cooler. And I had, I had met people on Twitter from around New Mexico and then from other places. And we all kind of gathered in a, in a little group to talk. They were mostly entrepreneurs and, and people who telecommuted like I did. And um, Jeff Phillips, who is the, he was the emergency manager for Los Ranchos de Albuquerque. And he's kind of the father of Vost. And I imagine everybody listening to this knows what Vost is, but just in case it's virtual operations support team. When I met Jeff, I was invited to, to start uh, doing the social media monitoring and amplification. And it, it kind of snowballed into, um, wow, it's been 12 years um, since that started. And uh, largely it was a volunteer thing. And then 
since I was doing wildfire work, I ended up becoming uh, what they call an AD in the Forest Service. It's administratively determined. And that means I hire in every year. And I basically do the same thing within the PIO realm. Thanks, Mara. It certainly sounds like that's a, an interesting way of getting into things. And um, you've had, yeah, certainly your fair share of disaster experience. And Colin, we've had you on the show before and really appreciate you coming back to us and um, talking about media last time. But for our listeners that might not have caught the last podcast, what, what sort of got you into the space and um, what's your experience in the social media and disaster management land? So I am an independent multimedia journalist with a focus on disasters, and I've reported on them for a number of publications from BBC News and The Guardian to Vox. And it really all started with my first job, which was in local television news in New York City. I covered Hurricane Sandy and really I I was in a community from the moment of impact for years to come and just sort of saw the changing needs of what media coverage looks like on that sort of long tail of a disaster. And that's really stayed with me as I've gone to more national or international outlets. So I've been interested in helping give that voice to communities ever since. And I do that through both the reporting I do for different media outlets, as well as a newsletter I have called My World's on Fire that not only tries to cover communities, but also give people a better idea of some of the structural forces that influence the way disasters play out, um, mostly in the United States, but occasionally around the world. Thanks, Colleen. I certainly agree that your um, newsletter is worth, is worth subscribing to. Certainly we'll tune into that every week when it comes out, which is, yeah, great to get a perspective on disasters. Yeah. And you recently reported the congressional hearing in the US where Facebook whistleblower Francis Hagen shared details about the inner workings of the social media network. And she even said Facebook's products harm children, stroke, uh, stoke division and weaken our democracy. Uh, there's been concerns for some time about the impact of Facebook, particularly on young people. Um, what did we learn from this inquiry? Yes. So when we're talking about structural forces that can influence a disaster, I mean, technology has certainly become one of them. It's a a huge source of how we live our lives on social media these days. That wasn't, of course, the focus of what she was talking about. It's been months now that she has been supplying different media organizations as well as U.S. government entities with internal documents from Facebook. So she worked there for about two years. She was a product manager. And as she says it, she started noticing some areas of concern while she was there, some places that made her worried about the influence Facebook had, as well as sort of the direction the company was going in. So before she decided to leave that job, she took thousands of pages of documents with her and has since been supplying them so that the public could have a better idea of some of this research that Facebook was doing internally, both on its impacts on mental health of users And as you were saying on children as well, how Facebook is looking to entice younger users onto the platform, how it's looking, how it's dealing with those people on there, how they see it influencing their mental health and and other aspects. So many people have studied social media and done this separately, but this was really a look inside the company that we hadn't had. And I think it's important to note as well that when we say Facebook, Facebook is 
a, a larger corporation now. It's Meta. So it's not just Facebook. We're also talking about Instagram and WhatsApp. So it's a lot of platforms that people use daily in their lives. Even if you're someone who became disenchanted with Facebook and got rid of that app, there's a good chance you might have one Facebook product on your phone. So these documents did speak to some of those other platforms, um, Instagram, especially when it comes to young people. So it, it was pretty huge that she came out with this information. And when she stood in front of the U.S. Congress, she was really kind of trying to catch people up with what those thousands of pages of documents said. And she advocated pretty heavily for some sort of oversight. And that's something that's not just being considered in the United States, but around the world. I know, I, I believe the next place she's slated to speak is in Ireland. So it's had kind of a global impact where people have really had this moment to stop and say, okay, maybe we had an idea of this before, but here's, here's some proof. And the last thing I'll say is that Facebook has responded to this. And they've said that a lot of this internal information was not put in the proper context, that it wasn't meant to be shared with people, that maybe it's, it's a bit of a larger whole, um, so uh, just to kind of complete that picture of what she put out there, as well as how the company responded. Yeah, I feel like this is kind of something that we all suspected was kind of happening in terms of these sort of things. Like there are negative towards using these platforms that we know cause issues for mental health. We've kind of heard the research previously, but now for the first time we've kind of seen it internally in the company that they're aware of this. So um, yeah, certainly some startling revelations um, out of that inquiry. And I think part of it as well is I think we always viewed social media as this separate entity that was out there, but not many people understood that there was corporations or companies behind these that had strategies and plans. And obviously it's a business at the end of the day. And I think that's something that's come to light. And I think that's a point of discussion here and, and ask this of both of you, um, you know, understanding what is the influence of social media then on our societies um, and also what roles do companies play in the back end of this? So what, you know, what consequences does this have when we start talking about not just social media, but also the companies in the organizations behind it, what are you two seeing, especially in disaster space in terms of the influence of these companies? Is it positive? Is it, is it negative? I'd love to hear from your perspective. I would say that it's a mixture of both positive and negative. Um, in terms of Facebook, I, I will give them credit for, their crisis response pages. I wish they had come earlier. Um, that was actually the big draw for me to even go to social media was the ability to keep track of, of friends and family and whether they were okay. There's that immediacy. If you think of say the, the Pacific U S um, tsunami back in, what was it, 1965? Think about the difference between having that tsunami alert come and knowing about it, and now. Mm. Um, I was actually online when the, um, when the big tsunami hit Japan, and we were all watching live video we knew what was happening. I was able to call my father and find out about his colleagues like right away. There's, there's an immediacy to knowing what's going on on the flip side of that. You don't all, you're getting a perception of what's going on. The, the feeds will light up with people saying things that may or may not be true. 
in the con- in the construct of emergency management. So what's actually happening and what people can see and what they put out are they can be vastly different mm. than the on the ground situation because they're operating in a bubble and they're not. I won't say everybody is not involved. Obviously, there's some people in emergency management, but even some people who are in the emergency management world may not be on that incident. So it's it's really important to look at those feeds in in a context and keeping in mind that there's extraneous information coming in, even from people who are professionals. And I would absolutely agree with Mar that I think it's really hard to say this is a good thing or a bad thing, because even on an individual level, you can go to an area that was hit with a hurricane and ask someone, well, how did social media impact the way that you were able to recover from this? Or what role did social media play for you in this? And you're going to get vastly different responses. You'll have one person who says, it's been incredible. I was displaced from my community and I can connect back with those people through a Facebook group. We can share resources. I learned about something I wouldn't have known because I'm in a different state. So I couldn't see the FEMA booth that popped up. It's It really has been transformative for some people in giving them not only resources, but a sense of connection that before social media was really severed, um, especially with an event that caused evacuations and mass displacements. At the same time, you talk to someone else and they're going to say, well, it's been terrible for me because I was the victim of a scam or I followed misinformation and then I wasn't able to, even if it was something, a mistake as small as someone putting the wrong date in for when someone could go pick up resources could go get socks or food or something they really needed. And those small things happen all the time. But for someone who just went through something so traumatic, that can be enough to really set them back. So I think as Mar was saying, I mean, it's so important to consider from a a large standpoint, but I think even that individual person, that individual community, you're going to hear really different things. And it's, it's tough to say, you know, we should get rid of this or we should encourage this because it's just so varied. It's an interesting discussion that Andrew and I have had around, you know, can you actually quantify net positive or net negative? And I think the, the place that Andrew and I always come to in our discussions is that we're still actually writing the journey. Like this is not something that's definitive and we can judge now. I think it's something that's ongoing and, and every day we figure out something new or we see a consequence or we see, we you know, we see something binary that happens from social media um, that we can look at. But I guess the question to you guys would be, and I know this is a question Andrew and I have, you know, tackled in discussions in cars and, and driving places though, is how do we influence or, or how do we actually be part of that journey moving forward? Because whose responsibility is it? And I think we, we touched on this um, before, Colleen, around, um, you know, there's a bit of scepticism around how much um, power or influence we do want social media and, and, and those companies having in our lives. Um, so looking at social media um, and looking at these technologies in disasters, as we go forward, as we move forward in this journey, whose responsibility is that? You know, do, do emergency services and government hand that over to Facebook and say, or to companies and technology companies say, you drive this innovation? Um, where do communities get involved? Um, you know, do tech companies and social media lead in this space or does it need to be have some sort of regulation where government can actually have a hand and influence the journey moving forward? 
What are your thoughts on on that uh, that that space? I think that there is a place for technology in this field. Um, I'm not so sure it's a matter of of handing it off to Facebook or Meta or Twitter or whatever. I I think it's it's almost the same relationship to me at any rate between emergency management and the public. Emergency management professionals are responsible if it's their incident for putting out the correct information and sadly also responsible for reining back messaging if it's misinformation and trying to correct it. And there's a role for technology in that. And I don't think there's any way to hand it off to to a third party. Vost is a great idea, but it really, I had this discussion very early on at its inception that virtual operations support team implies that you are supporting an operation. And if the emergency manager is not keeping track of that directly and managing it, then all that all that you can hope for is that the right message gets amplified and technology has a long way to go. My my um, academic background is artificial intelligence. And there was just an article today from New Public. I don't know if you've seen that that publication before. They had an article on on machine language applications for reining back misinformation. And I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the, um, the technology or the, the rules they were using, but it's the same one that's used for the stock market. So if the stock market, if they see the stock dropping really, really fast, there's a stop gap in there to just stop trading. And that's what they're looking at doing some people doing machine language learning is to find those spurts of misinformation and then manage to just cut off everything temporarily and then bring it back up. The problem with that, of course, is it's an algorithm. And just like any other algorithm in social media, it it's not the same as actually understanding why people are saying what they are. Social media is just a, a method of communication. It's not really, and we've been saying this for years, right? Yeah. It's don't be afraid of it. It's just a tool, just like the telephone was. It's, it's not the telephone. It's the people on either end of the telephone. So that's really what we need to look at as emergency managers. I think it was a really good point because it was only, I think, a couple of weeks ago I was in the car with a colleague and they actually asked me the questions. I said, oh, you know, we're, we're, you know, this is the topic of the next podcast and, and this is what we're talking about. And they actually asked me, they said, do you think social media is the root cause of the problem? And, and Mara, I, you know, I, I had the exact same sentiment around said, you know, to me, social media isn't the root cause of problems. 
always seeing is social media being a megaphone to the social issues that have always been in society has just provided a, a, you know, a microphone or a magnifying glass over the top of it and allowing people to connect with like-minded people. And sometimes that's good <laughs> and sometimes that's bad. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing an amplification of what's already going on in society. Um, it's just now that there's a platform or something that, that enables to um, amplify um, that conversation across multiple people, um, you know, whereas normally you might have a conversation with your friend um, in your community, you can now have that conversation across the world. And it probably makes me mm-hmm. think too in terms of there's been this growing distrust, and not just in the US but across the world. I know in Australia we're certainly feeling it as well with the media that um, I'm not sure if it was kind of spurred on by Donald Trump's fake news or if there's been a longer-term and societal issue. But do you think we're now it's pushing greater reliance on social media for people to find their information? So typically you would have gone to watch the nightly news on the TV and now you can use through a range of different platforms, online on the website or um, through social media, and not all of that has the same rigour that you might have had on a nightly news bulletin. So do you think there's a there's, there's bigger issues at play, I think, certainly, but like, what do you think is growing that sort of distrust and pushing people onto social media? And Colin, do you think it's creating an over-reliance then on, on getting information from social media? Social media has certainly reshaped how people get news. Um, completely hit the nail on the head there. There's no denying that at this point. It's really where I think most people turn to if if they suspect that there's some sort of breaking news event. Um, I know when I get like a I live in Los Angeles, so sometimes I will be getting ready for bed at night and I'll, you know, maybe kind of feel like I feel hear a shake or feel a shake. And then I go to Twitter because I'm like, was that an earthquake? I didn't quite get a shake alert yet. Maybe it wasn't a big enough one. Um, Just it's kind of what you do at this point is you think there's something going on and that's the fastest place to get information these days. And I know a lot of agencies in the U.S. also know that and have accordingly, they're sending those Twitter responses out right away. Um, That is something that I think has been a shift in recent years where I know I reported not too long ago on disasters and how a lot of that early information was coming from people. um, And there was a lot of misinformation associated with that. I think a lot of agencies, nonprofits and other officials have recognized that and tried to take steps to have their voice out there, even if it's just saying we're aware of a situation and we'll keep you updated. I think Mar really brought up an important point with the algorithm. Um, When you talk about the type of news that's being pushed on social media, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that people would go to Twitter for information or to Facebook for information if that's the platform they prefer. I think the challenge is the way the algorithms curate that information and present it to you. And that's something that was a large component of the concerns with the Facebook, Facebook whistleblower with Francis Haugen as well as in the reporting I've done, you know, when I have talked to tech companies, they aren't necessarily viewing something like a a crisis response page as something different than the work they're already doing. There's not a different algorithm that is into play in that situation, even though it is perhaps a more sensitive situation, one that could 
benefit from being looked at in a different way. So I think that algorithms really the concerning part is, you know, as, as I think all of us agree, this is human behavior. The conspiracy theories that we're seeing on social media tend to stem back decades. They're not new necessarily because of Facebook or Twitter, but it's the way that if you engage with one of them, suddenly you're pushed another one or you're recommended a page that might take you down a different route. So I think that is really a large source of concern from officials. Um, and, and I think the public, I think a lot of people get it now too, right? Like we kind of know if I watch one YouTube video, I'm getting sent this YouTube video. So that's where I think it gets a little difficult and where, especially in terms of, of a disaster situation, you can be put into a, a concerning situation. Yeah, I think it's it's a conversation that I know is happening over here uh, amongst a lot of the emergency services and government around social media and that whole notion of echo chambers. Uh, because at the end of the day, and this is my greatest fear, is that could we potentially get to a space where the algorithm is actually working against government, um, not because of, you know, social media in any way, shape or form has 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 um, had that outcome, outcome in mind, but just purely the way the algorithm is being driven, you know, could we potentially see in the near future um, people actually questioning emergency services um, information that's going through Facebook or potentially will they never, ever see it because the algorithm in the back end is only pushing them things that they, you know, interact on a daily basis. Ma, I'm interested to hear from your point of view, have you been using any strategies or is that a conversation that's happening in the US as well in, in the emergency management space? You know, it's it's always been an issue. Um, th- this is one really good use of virtual operations is is that amplification of the official message pushes up the popularity of that message. So getting people just at the initial part when you um, when you establish a page, get as many people as you can to broadcast that that page is even there. And with that, people know, you know, this is the official page that this information is coming from. I do worry and I, I, I wonder, I'm sure there's studies somewhere about how the algorithms affect community groups. So not so much the pages that we put up for, for incidents, because I think eventually those things do float to the top. And, you know, just watching the, the growth of shares along the way, you know, when something breaks, as people will chatter and then the official page goes up and then the chatter drops and a lot of people are amplifying the official things. But I wonder if the phenomenon of polarization and the way algorithms amplify that has has a role in misinformation during a disaster. I haven't seen that per se, but I have seen, you know, and again, it's always been there, but the little conspiracies underneath what you see during a disaster, which most of us realize are just conspiracies and there's, they don't hold any water whatsoever, but they're there in these groups and people are arguing and it it's conflated with the polarization we have in society now. And I wonder if those discussions, you know, when you join a group in Facebook, it will give you things 
periodically out of that group, unless you've said, give me everything. If you click on one of them, just like Colleen said, you're going to get more of it. So if people are having this undercurrent conversation in a disaster community group of affected people, those polarized posts are getting amplified and getting driven by the algorithm. I think the really interesting thing, and I think it was a point you made before, Mara, it's at the end of the day, social media is a tool. Um, and, you know, there's also a responsibility for government um, and for emergency services before they even hop on social media to build that trust, to build that brand with communities so that before people even head towards social media, there's already a level of trust and understanding um, in those organisations and in government, which I think will help later down the track how people interact with social media in itself. But Colleen, what, what's your feeling in US, you know, they had that congressional hearing, are people feeling more confident that government in the States is looking into this issue? Is is that what's the level of trust or, or what are you hearing in communities in that space? I actually want to go back really quickly to your question from before um, and to Mar's response, just to say that One conversation I've seen a lot on Twitter with emergency management professionals is frustration over, um, you know, your Twitter time, your Twitter timeline can either be the most interacted with posts or a chronological one. And that's something I've seen a lot of frustration around when it comes to something like a wildfire, because maybe the most interacted with post is going to be the announcement that there's an evacuation or a really jarring photo. But then there's constant updates happening that haven't been interacted with as much. And someone who logs onto Twitter might see first something that's outdated. So I know that has been a large concern, um, especially when Twitter has talked about considering getting rid of that chronological time in it, timeline and really focusing on the more engaged posts is how that would change the way that people are able to get information out. And Twitter being a place that before you could really kind of have aggression building of, okay, there's an advisory, there's a warning, there's, you know, it, before there was a sense to it. And now that can so easily be lost in a way that is potentially dangerous for people and frightening um, for people as well. And then just to revisit the idea of community groups on Facebook, this is actually an area I've reported on a fair amount, and I'm in a lot of them, um, both from recent events that have happened, as well as ones that have happened, I mean, maybe five, six years ago and are still active. And you definitely do see the posts that have arguments, um, the posts that have photos. I know there was one group I was in where people started saying, I really need diapers for my baby. And here's a photo of my baby because I know more people are going to look at this. Like people flat out said that they knew that they needed to drive engagement. And there's something that can feel kind of black mirror about that, which is that you need to influence to get this help that you needed from your community. And it wasn't just that it's kind of like the natural human thing of wanting to interact with a cute baby or a dog photo, but it was also that the volume of need that exists in a lot of these groups means there's a lot of posts happening. And some people would say, I put something up, but then right after me was a photo of this beautiful family and went straight down to them. There's one step to the top. And I mean, there's, 50 hundreds of posts happening in these groups every day. 
I think that's really difficult for people too. I know I spoke with one woman who said it was just like really demoralizing that she would post in these groups and she would never get any help and she'd see someone else getting it. And it, I can't imagine it was anything personal. I think it was the algorithm that just yeah. did, you know, she wasn't super versed in social media. She downloaded Facebook after being displaced by a wildfire. So she wasn't using some of those tools that people more familiar with the algorithm knew she didn't have hashtags or photos or something. So I, I think it's definitely happening to a degree when it comes to, you know, amplifying conspiracy theories. I can't speak to that as much, but I do know anecdotally that like the algorithm is functioning in even those smaller community spaces. The challenge I think is in disasters that those people who are the most vulnerable tend to be the, the most greatest impacted and that's unfortunate. That's unfortunately just a reality of it. But I do wonder that then if there's people out there who are, um, if social media is making that worse basically, I mean if, if there's people out there who are more vulnerable, who aren't getting the same attention because they don't get the, the pretty photo of the baby on Facebook or whatever else. I'm wondering how then, in your perspective, emergency managers or people responsible for managing those Facebook pages can actually um, support those who actually need the help and those who are posting those images and those sort of um, the emotional type images that really get the attention aren't getting more attention from the government or the agency responsible for managing the emergency um, do you think there's a real element of unfairness by by this and previously to social media, we may not have experienced that? And and how do we as emergency managers help provide that element of fairness and ensure that we are providing a service to all in the community, not just those who are allowed on social media or calling the TV station? I think social media is amplifying that though. But how do we provide the element of fairness, do you think? Well, I think for one thing, we all need to realise that social media is not the be-all, end-all of, of the emergency management cycle, (laughs) you know, it's, and I want to drop back to something you said earlier, which was about emergency management, uh, making connections with the public before something happens. I think that social media is a great thing and it's great for getting out alerts, but if you want to be trusted, you need to have a relationship And you can't just be an invisible face behind a screen. Um, I had an interesting experience where I was working on a prescribed burn messaging project. And I'd been doing the social media for it. And it is true that there were people, say, on Nextdoor who post, I see smoke. Where's that smoke coming from? And had no clue that there was a prescribed burn going on, even though it went out on the local alerts. It was in the newspaper and it was on social media. That weekend, I went to Farmer's Market and manned a booth with someone else and people came by. Half of them didn't know what the group was doing that was running the prescribed burns and Some of them had some misinformation as well. Even the people with misinformation, I could find some connection there, pull them aside and have a chat with them and listen to what they had to say and what their concerns were. I think that's that goes just the same on social media. It's it does you no good to monitor social media and to put out your messaging if you're not really going to hear what people are concerned about and let them know that you've heard them. And 
if that means repeating it back like you would in a community meeting in person, then you need to do that. And I, I realize there's some things that are just so far off left field that you don't don't really want to do that. But but developing those relationships with people who don't agree with you will take our field and the world a lot further than the way things are going now. Yeah, I think I think for a lot of emergency services around the world really need to understand that social media, and I think it's a good point that social media is is not a silver bullet to, to all of our problems. I think sometimes it's put in that light and people forget that as emergency managers, as people that work in disasters, um, you know, we have a whole spectrum of tools that we, we utilize and we can't just um, gravitate to one. I think that's to Andrew's point. Um, maybe if vulnerable communities or vulnerable people in the communities aren't on social media, well, you need to look at a different method around how you communicate and how you can go about understanding that need. Because um, I think one of the, my biggest fear is that people use social media as the, you know, the set and forget autopilot. Oh, you know, we've, we've posted on social media, the warning tick done and move on. It's like, well, hold on guys. Um, you've only, you know, spoken to maybe 10% of the community, how you've reached the other, um, you know, 90% of the community. Colleen, I think one of the other interesting things is that we've seen, and I think this is a trap and it kind of continues this conversation is that a lot of emergency services are actually going to social media for their intelligence. You know, a lot of uh, emergency services, you know, uh, all around the world are facing scarcity issues. Um, you've obviously, you know, this idea of crowdsourcing information. Uh, and then there's a risk of where, you know, emergency services themselves could be getting misinformation. And I know that you've done a little bit of work around this in communities and looking at um, how information, you know, how we use social media in a two-way communication um, platform What's your thoughts around that in terms of how emergency services need to be careful in that space and and how quickly um, conversations in community can go one way or the other? Yeah, that was something I thought was really interesting when I was reporting on these spaces. I spoke with community members who were in these groups, who moderated these groups, the some of the technology platforms that support them. And then when I spoke with professionals from emergency management agencies and said, well, what do you think of these I kind of had no idea that like a lot of them were lurkers in these groups. They were in there to see what was happening. And I said, well, what happens then if you do see a conspiracy theory or you do see some sort of misinformation and their general rules were that they didn't engage within the group. They would then go to their own platforms and, you know, if it was reiterating the correct information about something or saying, Hey, we've seen, you know, this sort of information out there. Um, that's not true. So I thought that was really interesting. And there's, there's one example in the U S that comes to mind, which was in 2020, there were a number of wildfires in Oregon and there became this really persistent rumor through social media that they were being set by um, Antifa. And this was during a time that there were a lot of protests happening in the U S there was a lot of unrest. This was um, a group whose name was coming up a lot in the news and especially on social media and oftentimes was a part of a conspiracy. And it got to the point that the rumors really overwhelmed local emergency managers because they were seeing accounts online and hearing accounts that people were like planning to stand their ground at their home because they thought these people were coming to, you know, maybe do something to their property or they wanted to go find the people doing this, like a sort of vigilante um, idea. So 
I think it has serious repercussions and I think it's something that I'm, I mean, I'd be really interested to hear how you all are, are dealing with this and how Mar is dealing with this because it, it does seem like a really difficult space where I can understand how as an emergency manager, as someone maybe who's a representative of a government agency, you don't want to be engaging in those Facebook groups because they are something of a safe space, I think, for communities. I know community members really see this as a place where they can not only crowdsource resources, but have that connection with people. And I could see how suddenly seeing something from, you know, like a local government official could sort of break that that wall and feel like you can't maybe speak as freely. Um, but at the same time, I think we've sort of seen some limits of trying to not engage directly with some of these and, you know, then puts out something afterwards. I, I think it can kind of be um, sometimes like a little too late where you have this problem that maybe started on social media has spread to a larger community conversation. And then you're trying to kind of get in there afterwards and clean up. And that can't always be possible if it is a really breaking situation. So, yeah, I would love to turn that question back around and hear whatever it else is to say. I don't know what your opinion is, Mara or Andrew, but I know for, for myself, I know Andrew and I have used this um, strategy in disasters in Australia is that um, that very notion of, of not wanting to be, um, you know, the, the blue uniform, standing in front of people, telling people what to do. And again, going to sound like a bit of a broken record here, but social media is for me the second or third or fourth tool you go to. So um, one strategy that we've been utilising um, in Australia for, for Andrew and myself is how do you, infil- well, not infiltrate, it's probably not the right word, but how do you interact with, um, you know, those leaders in community, get them on side, help them understand your cause, bring them into, I guess, into the camp, into the tent, um, and then using them as a, as, a, as a voice in social media themselves. So rather than the agency or the government ourselves talking to community directly through community, community groups is actually using community leaders and community influencers um, to distribute information on our behalf. And I guess that's got two effects for us. One, um, the community is a lot more trustworthy. You know, these community leaders and members have obviously built trust over many years and have that um, credibility in communities. So, you know, it's a fast track for us as emergency services, but also it's a, it's a great way around, like you said, Colleen, is in terms of people not feeling spied on or big brother, um, but still being able to, at the end of the day, reach that outcome of how do we get key messages, key safety messages into communities. Um, keen to hear your thoughts, Andrew Ma, around what you use. Well, I think I totally agree with Josh in that respect. And I think one of the things, and I have to admit, I'm a lurker as well. I sit in a lot of Facebook groups and see these <laughs> disasters and just wait for the next one. But also I think understanding that there is a certain life cycle to this. And, and I think we spoke last time, Colleen, about the sunshine fire where the group kind of turns on itself after a while. And I think the same thing has happened uh, in Australia where you get those initially such excitement around disasters and, um, people are really out there to help each other and almost those community leaders that are established on Facebook, they might not be a community leader, but on the Facebook page, they're seen as someone with authority and influence and they might coordinate donated goods, which is good and bad. Um, they might coordinate spontaneous volunteering or other different efforts to help clean up or muck out houses or whatever it is. But then understanding and anticipating what comes next. So you can sort of foresee issues coming and, and and adapt appropriately. So you can sort of see and sense when things are going to happen. If the flood's about to go over the flood levy or the bushfire's about to encroach on a town, 
you can start to get a sense of what happens. And then as that goes away, you can sort of see, okay, there's going to be, based on the size of the disaster, there's going to be a big heap of volunteers come down here. If they're putting out calls to say, we need people here, you can start to see, okay, people that are coming from outside the community and you see trauma and those sort of things, those emotive images will really start to attract people to that. Um, so I think it's really about understanding what comes next and anticipating if there's going to be a major outpouring of support or the community starts turning on itself because people are angry with each other or not happy, then that's about how we sort of manage that and deal with that. And being part of those groups, not spying on people, it certainly provides that intelligence and anticipation and then can start to pull some levers internally in the organisation of what to do next to make sure that that, that doesn't happen and, and the community has some positive outputs for potentially becoming more resilient for the future. I have I have seen all these phenomenon on incidents that I have worked. I have the advantage and disadvantage of having worked a lot of type one incidents. And unfortunately, that means the incident management team is going in from somewhere else. And there there are places that burn every year. As Colleen is aware from covering the Pacific Northwest, it, it just, you know, oh, yeah, they're they've got a fire. That's not anything out of the usual. But I think, again, having those connections ahead of time and maybe that's through the local emergency management structure. Um, it, it really is a local issue when you're dealing with the community. And if I realize that some communities are smaller or maybe only as one emergency manager, it's going to take having some sort of an emergency coalition, I think, to deal with messaging. So, so you might have people who are, you know, involved with the school system, even who, who are emergency managers for the school, and you might be a general emergency manager or fire and bringing those entities together specifically for mention for messaging. Um, we have a PIO network where I am. And so having those those different facets of emergency management where you can spread the message through them and through their trusted contacts, that actually was the whole purpose of VOST was to have trusted agents. I think that's that's fine. But again, you can't get to everybody through a citizen. Um, Emergency managers themselves have much more scope and the ability to get out quick messaging and have it right. Um, I don't discount it as all at all. I mean, I still do it, but I think at some point it puts, it puts that citizen in a strange situation. The, the system of having an incident and having PIOs on the ground and talking to community members at the general store or wherever they are on trap line is how you're going to establish relationships in the community. Yeah. And I think for me, the real positive thing at the end of the day is that we're having the conversation. I think for so long, people didn't question social media. It was like, oh, it's this great new tool. And, um, and we just use it and it's the, you know, it's, it's going to save us all. And it's going to be the, you know, the, the be all end all, but I'm, I'm really glad that, you know, we're actually having a conversation, not that it's a negative conversation, but people are actually questioning and saying, are, you know, are we actually using it appropriately? You know, what, how can we do things better? I think that's a really good conversation in anything in life to always have, you know, that continual um, improvement. 
and I know we're, we're probably running out of time, but I know that social media moving forward, you know, it's constantly changing. Look at, you know, Meta, you know, Web3. I think in the next few years, we're going to see huge changes again, and it's going to pose a whole nother set of questions for us that we need to go, you know, how do we, in terms of disasters, government, community, um, actually interact with some of these new technologies? But before we kind of wrap up today, you know, I'd be really interested if you had to, if we've got a lot of emergency managers obviously on here and listen to this podcast, if you had to give them, you know, your piece of golden advice in terms of social media and disasters, you know, what might that be? And I'll start with you, Colleen, um, around what your advice would be. I think it's something we might have said early in the conversation, but a recurring thread I hear from so many people who have engaged with social media as a means of getting information or of facilitating the recovery is feeling like they haven't been heard, um, feeling like they maybe weren't aware of what the disaster was when it came to their area. I hear a lot of people saying, I didn't get a warning on my phone. It was a neighbor who knocked on my door as they were evacuating. Um, Or someone who says, I reached out through all the channels I was told to reach out through. I wasn't offered a lot of resources or I've been in this bureaucratic system and I just can't get a straight answer. I'm on the phone constantly. So I, I think a lot of it is, People are really struggling to be heard. And I say that understanding as well, that this has been a really difficult time for people in all of your positions in emergency management. I know there's so much burnout happening in that field. I know there's in the U.S. significant understaffing happening, a really large loss of talent and expertise in these spaces. So I know it's difficult then to say, as we are having more disasters, compounding disasters, you need to be giving this sort of more individualized attention to help people. Um, But that is absolutely what I hear from people is that they're engaging with these spaces because they're feeling disconnected, they're feeling under-resourced, and they're looking for, for someone not only to help them, but to hear them. Well, I'm going to echo what Colleen said about about making sure that people feel heard. Secondly, I would say don't make good use of social media, but don't depend on it Mm. and be mindful of the stress, not only from polarization, but from disaster information and to back away when you need to and make sure you're taking care of your people who are doing the vetting of information online. Everyone needs to keep in mind how much that can affect people who are in this field or worse yet, who aren't in this field who volunteer to put in that effort. And that's made me just realize that a lot of times um, where I've seen before, we have um, people who might be put into a social media role where they just kind of say, oh, you've used social media before, you're on Facebook, here, jump on and and manage the Facebook page or coordinate this for an agency sort of thing where this is actually far more than just being able to post a photo or post a selfie. This is actually being understanding the strategy, understanding communities and understanding how to communicate with people. It's far more complex than that. And um, I know we're about to run out of time. I just want to ask one more quick question around the future of social media. And about 15, 10, whatever years ago, um, MySpace was all the craze. I didn't have MySpace. Before today, I'm sure Josh would be my top friend on, on MySpace. But um, <laughs> if we were to look now, MySpace is gone um, and Facebook is here. And people have said, oh, Facebook will be dead soon. Facebook's gone. There'll be something else. We've had everything else, Snapchat, Twitter, Instagram. They've all sort of come and, and stuck around. 
What do you see five or 10 years down the track? Do you think we'll have the same platforms we have now with the same operating environment? Do you think there'll be greater regulation around these platforms? And how do you see the future with disasters, just quickly in terms of what that might look like? But if we look down the down the tunnel of time and sort of see what the future might hold, is it a pretty picture or should we start being a bit more nervous and putting some plans into place now for how we deal with that? I am always quite apprehensive to make predictions, but what I will say from what I've seen is, you know, right now there is serious conversations happening around regulations, maybe more serious than we've seen in the past. And again, that's not just in the United States. We're seeing those all over the world. So I... I think that is something that could really change this landscape. Um, Definitely something to follow closely. When it comes to other technology, I think we've talked a lot about how these platforms are really amplifying some human behavior. So as new platforms come up, I think they're going to have to reckon with a lot of the same issues. One that... I've seen concern around in the US is citizen, um, which kind of gives you like it curates all of the police scanner alerts, um, emergency alerts. And citizen had an incident where they decided to put a money amount on having their users find someone who was suspected to have set a wildfire in California. It was a bit of a frenzy. Um, they had, you know, tons of people interacting with this. This man's photo was shared all across Citizen, Nextdoor, Facebook, you name the platform. And as it turned out, they had the wrong person. Oh. So I think situations like that are are the sort of thing that I look at social media and find concerning. Um, you know, it's. As I think we've said over and over, there's the positives and the negatives, and it's tough to say what sort of new platforms are going to learn from those positive and negatives or amplify them. So it's a tricky one. I think the easiest thing to say is that we will definitely still be using some sort of social media in that future. So hopefully the sort of conversations like we're having right now are happening in a lot of different rooms and in a lot of different spaces. And I I do think there's an increased awareness in the public of some of the drawbacks to having a sort of, you know, dependency on these spaces or utilizing them on their own without maybe taking a step back every now and then without turning to other sources for information. I'm, I'm experiencing this renaissance in being offline Um, I'm watching friends drop off of social media entirely. Mm. Um, I've had a few friends go back to blogs, Mm. which is an interesting, interesting concept and, and networking their blogs, but possibly privately. So I just had an invitation from someone to follow his blog, but it's locked down. So it, it's, uh, and maybe you want to call it a long form, a long form WhatsApp, <laughs> you know, people are going to their private networks to share information in their own way. So like Colleen, I don't want to place any bets on anything, but I think ideally what, what would be useful would be for social media to be more vetted information as 
made public. So I spent a lot of time trying to convince people, hey, you can you can get these emergency posts whether or not you're on Facebook. Mm. That's really how that should go so that anybody can get to the real information. And if people want to share opinions, then they're going to do it some other way. That, that's what seems to be evolving. And that may be harder to catch misinformation. So some of these things like Telegraph or WhatsApp, people are sharing misinformation. And, you know, unless you're in that little network, you can't get it. Maybe if we went back to what Facebook was actually meant for, which was simply to get news about your friends and family and what's going on rather than having arguments with each other. Um, maybe that's how it needs to be again. Uh, I think, I think the one takeaway from, from this, from this discussion for me is really that and I think we touched on it at the start is the story's not over. Um, you know, whether you say it's a net positive or a net negative or where we're going, I think really for me, the story's not over, but I think the key um, that I'm taking away is that it's all about collaboration. I think we need to see greater collaboration between government and emergency services with these technology companies. Um, and we need to see greater relationships built across those. So I think that's what we're seeing play out in some of those congressional hearings is that if everyone was actually at the table at the start, we probably could have um, navigated away from some of these issues that we're finding ourselves in now. Yeah, we've kind of butchered Facebook, haven't we? We've kind of said taken a, a thing for sharing photos and sharing catching up with your friends online into something where you can just get ads and government information and we've kind of, I guess, contributed to that, which is not ideal. But, yeah, the interesting um, times will come in the future and we'll have more challenges, I'm sure, but at least I think through a more collaborative approach we'll, um, we'll achieve good things. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Colin and Mark, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a great discussion with you today and uh, thanks both of you for sharing your experience and thoughts with us. We've shared a few bonus extras on our website and a link to sign up to Colleen's newsletter, which is certainly something you should do. They're on our website at memyselfdisaster.com. Thanks for joining us today on Me, Myself and Disaster. That's all we have time for on the show today. Join us again next time on Australia's leading disaster podcast as we talk to more interesting guests from across the world about their experiences during disasters. We'll catch you then. Thanks for listening to Me, Myself and Disaster. Subscribe today at memyselfdisaster.com. Listener.